This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 26th of October 2021 at home in Wicklow. Sometimes I don't know what an episode of The Clear Out is about until after I've finished recording it. And this week's episode was very much uh, an example of this. So what you'll hear me talk about is... um, is fundamentally about identity and parentage, existence, purpose, meaning, fulfillment. Um, So, you know, areas that I have explored before, but the conversation that I have in today's episode was prompted by watching the Blade Runner sequel from a few years ago, Blade Runner 2049. And so I go on a meandering circuitous journey through the experience of being an object and being created and trying to have a sense of purpose and a sense of completion and I do as usual relate it to wellness and mental health and I refer to other movies and I refer to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein Uh, Disney's Pinocchio uh, amongst other things but it was only when I sat down to sort of go back through the episode and try and piece together the different sections I realized that and this is a phrase I did not use in the recording of the episode but really the whole discussion and the works that I cite they're all about the unloved child And that's why you see that phrase in the title of the episode. So that really is the the, the driving energy of this exploration. Um, The unloved child and the parent who is uninterested uh, or the parent who turns away. And I failed to quote in in the episode, and I really wanted to, I failed to quote Percy Biss Shelley's Ozymandias because there's a sequence in Blade Runner 2049 towards the latter part of the movie beautifully shot sequence in yellow desert sands where the central character Ryan Gosling is walking past these enormous fallen statues and of course it evokes Ozymandias and that famous uh, quote from the poem, the words that are written on the pedestal of a fallen statue. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And of course, the, you know, the, the moral or the message of the, the, the Shelley poem is sort of the, the folly of, of man's vanity. And I suppose if we relate that back to the idea of the uninterested parent who is caught up in their own uh, self-absorption and their own vanity and neglects the child, that is kind of the connection. And it's also, also of course, in, in terms of the Blade Runner stories, it's the story of, of creation of men with God complexes and the objectification of their creations. So, yeah, there's all of that in uh, coming up. Uh, I think it's really good. I think it's a really interesting topic, and I hope I have managed to 
convey successfully the areas of interest that relate to it. And uh, I hope I successfully draw the line back to to wellness and mental health and self-care. Um, you know, there's only one way to find out, and that's to listen. So get into it. I will see you there. Cheers. Ooh, not going to change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear, and you are listening to The Clear Out. How are you today? I hope... I hope this little this little broadcast finds you well. Well, it's not a broadcast; it's a podcast. <laughs> uh, I can't believe for the third week in a row, the third episode in a row, I'm going to have a whinge about my health. Uh, I got absolutely clobbered last week with whatever that dose was, um, and it really just would not let go. Extremely tenacious. And I feel, I feel, you'll be glad to hear, I feel like I'm bouncing back. Bouncing back with a vengeance. Um, Although, yeah, you can hear, you can hear that, you can hear that tone. You can hear that tone in my voice. That somewhat nasally, cold tone. It's there, it's still in me, but it's on its way. And I'll be very glad to see it go. So there you go. That's the health report. So now you're up to speed with my uh, with my immune system, which uh, I, I normally have enormous enormous faith in, but it's it's been challenged. It's been challenged by this micro epic. Anyway, whatever. We'll soldier on. This week's episode, uh, I've got a good one. I've got a good one. I didn't know what I was going to be talking about, but last night, my wife and I were. Sitting down watching Blade Runner 2049, Denis Villeneuve's sequel to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner from 1982. And a very, yeah, a very accomplished movie. Such a beautiful movie to look at. Such a great world that was built and carried on without without being a huge departure from the, the, the world that Ridley Scott created for Blade Runner. Uh, I don't know who the designer was of that that set, that look for that movie, but um, as I say, Denis Villeneuve's sequel, which was from um, 2017, I think, was a very faithful uh, return to that world, um, set as it was 30 years later than the the original the original being set in 2019 there was a lot of commentary uh two years ago um around that fact that it's 2019 you know are we in the world of Blade Runner yet the answer was no we weren't and we still aren't but Blade Runner apart from being a sci-fi noir uh, world uh, into which we are brought in in both movies, Blade Runner really poses these great philosophical questions about about existence and about meaning and about where we come from and about what it is to be born, to be created, or to be a creation and what it is to be an object 
and what it is to be an object that has been designed to serve to serve the living to serve the organic to serve the human um and it plays with this idea of artificial intelligence i suppose um or certainly artificial intelligence as represented in android form the 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 the, the key characters really of the blade runner movies are replicants and replicants are fundamentally uh human clones uh with extra extra skills and extra resources extra strength extra stamina and the the central premise really that supports both movies is that replicants crave independence and replicants do not want to be slaves and replicants crave life and they crave uh inverted commas normal life and in the original you had um you had the the replicants brilliantly played by uh daryl hannah and joanna cassidy uh brian james in the opening interview or was it yes it was and most famously probably or most significantly rutger hauer as the sort of alpha of the replicants and in the original harrison ford's deckard is a blade runner whose job it is to track down and terminate rogue replicants and the question raised um and i i don't feel (laughs) i don't feel i know and i don't feel it's ever been satisfactorily answered the question raised for years is was harrison ford a replicant himself not the actor, but the character, Deckard, was he a replicant but didn't realise it? Um, and in the original, he falls in love with a replicant. And then where Blade Runner 2049 takes up the story is that Harrison Ford's character had a like fathered a child with a replicant. And of course, this is a, this is a revolution and it's a revolution in the world of replicants and uh, eugenics. And in both movies, you have these very chilly, cold um, father figures, the creators of the um, the creators of the replicants. And in the original uh, Blade Runner, the character was Tyrell, who sat in his Xanadu-like complex, lording it over everyone, very safely removed from the the nitty-gritty of day-to-day life. And he was played by Joe Turkle, who, if I recall correctly, was also the barman in The Shining. Um, A slightly... I want to say his face is somewhat... I don't emaciated might not be the most generous term to use but he has a certain kind of skull like <laughs> i mean we all have a skull <laughs> we all have skull like faces don't we uh but you know what i mean that kind of sunken cheekbone thing and a bit grim looking and thin-lipped um so yeah quite yeah not not you know not 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 a face you would naturally warm to in the in the sequel from a few years ago that that role that type is played by jared leto 
and now the company is named for him. It's called Wallace. So he he bought out the Tyrell company, and he uh, again portrays. I don't know. It's funny. I mean, I wonder if Denis Villeneuve thought at all about these big tech lords that have so much power and influence in the world today. Uh, of course, I'm thinking of people like uh, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, these big tech megalomaniacs um, who sometimes can feel somewhat less than human. And I wonder, I wonder did that notion pop into Denis Villeneuve's head? In any case, Jared Leto is quite creepy he's blind in the movie and you know long-haired blind very cold very uh, impassive unemotional um but evidently enthralled to his own achievements and a very sort of cold god overlord looking down on all he has created um yeah so anyway, I mean, these are, you know, these are kind of archetypal characters and they set up very kind of conventional dynamics. Um, and in the sequel, it's it's Ryan Gosling, who is the equivalent of the Harrison Ford character from the original. And he plays Kay. And it's his job to get to the bottom of this mystery. Did replicants have a, have a child? And over the course of the story, he begins to become, he becomes convinced um, through his investigation that he is the child and there is where he has his reckoning with his own identity his own significance his own purpose um and his you know that 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 profound engagement with self and what it means and suddenly suddenly being given meaning and I don't know, arguably a, a sense of worth. He he makes reference early in the movie that to be human is to have a soul. And this is this is the 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 great sort of the great poser or the great riddle of of, of these worlds where we as the audience are invited to speculate about what uh what a a manufactured being can feel and of course it brings it begs the question what is the nature of consciousness and what is in that mind of a creation like the Ryan Gosling character and what processes are happening and is everything by virtue of being a man-made creation is everything fundamentally artificial but we go on this journey and because this character is placed front and center as the protagonist of the story, we go through these normal beats of relating to and empathizing with that character and, you know, feeling for his defeats and his, his, his victories. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, Ryan Gosling clearly chose in the movie to portray the character with this kind of deadened uh, affect. Um, and I mean, this is something that Ryan Gosling, you know, I, I, I was very, very impressed at Ryan Gosling when he emerged on the scene 
Um, I remember seeing him, and I'm not talking about the Mickey Mouse Club or whatever it was, the kid stuff he did, but I think his first big breakout movie was uh, The Believer, about a young guy, a young a young Jewish guy who falls in with neo-Nazis and kind of embraces neo-Nazism. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, Teresa Russell was in that, and Billy Zane, and possibly Stacey Keach. I can't remember if Stacey Keach was in that one or if he, if he was in American History X. Um, but in any case, he was good in that and then very good in Lars and the Real Girl. And you thought, oh, this is, a, this is a guy to watch. But sometimes that stillness, that great stillness he's capable of within his you know, incredibly photogenic uh, face and body, that stillness can just be a little bit too, for me, it can be just a little bit too on the dead side, a little bit too inert. And I enjoyed watching the movie last night more probably than the first one or two times I'd seen it. But I remember the first time I'd seen it when Harrison Ford's character resurfaces late in the movie. It was like this injection of life into the movie that it had up till then been lacking. And I don't know if that's a testament to Harrison Ford's on-screen presence, his uh, his natural charisma, um, or if this was very specifically directed in that way by uh, by Villeneuve, but very a very very effective contrast in any case. So anyway, there I was watching the movie last night, and there is there is a little sequence in the movie where Kay, the Ryan Gosling character, has you know been through this whole journey and he's sitting back in his apartment with his own um his own replicant companion like a virtual companion who is called joy and she's incredibly demure and loving and attentive and agreeable and coquettish and coy and flirtatious and you know, fundamentally a fantasy, uh, uh, you know, a straight male fantasy played by, um, oh, she's a, I think she's a Cuban, Cuban-American or Cuban actress, Ana de Anos or something. Oh, I'd have to look it up again. I've seen her in a couple of things. Um, and it's interesting to watch Kay being very sort of, once he gets home to the comfort of his apartment and switches her on, he... He, he kind of falls into a very classical kind of film noir sardonic mode um, with these kind of yeah, sardonic quips that he exchanges with her um, and that's him you know we see him in that place at his most comfortable and his most human if you like um, but in any case he's sitting down with Joy and he's he's sharing what he's found with her and she says to him on this kind of revelation that he could be human and she replies to him I always knew you were special maybe this is how a child of woman born pushed into the world wanted loved and it's a very it's a very poignant moment because she's a very sympathetic character because there's a sort of a, a vulnerability in her that's not as evident in him. And 
she engages fully with this sort of validation of his of his journey and his his quest for for identity meaning and maybe closure on that journey and we we just have this sense with her throughout this kind of sense of you know this sort of foreboding that you know she because of the nature of what she is the type of um artificial intelligence product that she is that she's always going to be ephemeral she's always going to be a mayfly it's just going to be one day of glory and gone forever um but it struck me last night when she said that to him that that line um of woman of woman born what'd she say um yeah of woman born pushed into the world wanted loved and <laughs> it instantly made me think of a recent quote that I put down from Tyson Fury. Now, Tyson Fury, if you don't know, is uh, an English boxer of Irish traveller background. So, um, you know, part of an ethnic group of Irish Travellers, originally tinkers, now in Irish referred to as na minkeri, uh, gypsies, Irish gypsies, if you want to simplify it to that. But Tyson Fury is a current heavyweight boxing champion. He recently defeated, uh, I want to say, Deontay Wilder in in a, a boxing match for the ages. They pummeled the heads off each other and bodies off each other for 15 rounds I think it was and Fury came out triumphant he's quite highly regarded uh, in terms of his boxing um, his boxing repertoire he's considered a very skillful boxer and it's clear he takes coaching and tactics uh, on board very very successfully Deontay Wilder while having a powerful uh, punch is not that highly regarded as a boxer. So he was basically outboxed, outclassed, outmaneuvered by Tyson Fury. But Tyson Fury is also known for, you know, typical in sort of boxing, typical in MMA, that kind of, you know, braggadocio of these fighters uh, as part of playing the game and promoting the brand and selling themselves and puffing the chests out. I mean, this goes all the way back, doesn't it? Um, I mean, arguably, there was nobody better at this than Muhammad Ali, his verbal skills and how he'd demonize and ridicule his opponents with uh, that sort of, um, that kind of jibber-jabber and fly talk that he had in the kind of, in the weigh-ins and in his interviews. And he was such a charming, charismatic individual. Now, that said, there was a dark side to that. Like, he really... He 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 he. he I, I think he took it too far often, and you know he vilified some of his opponents in in a way that really was bad form. Um, Joe Frazier and um, George Foreman, in particular, who were two of his most formidable opponents, um, and he really kind of denigrated them and played. He kind of played the race card against them, like you know fellow Black Americans, um, and you know accused them of being kind of gorillas and uncle toms and he really there was a kind of a dark real dark side to that kind of stuff as much as muhammad ali is cherished and loved 
um, and celebrated as arguably the greatest of all time. But anyway, back to Tyson Fury, who, you know, his own track record with the stuff he comes out with hasn't been great. You know, a bit of homophobia in the mix. Um, you know, a bit of maybe, ah, look, maybe a bit of fundamental Christianity informing that. Um, but, you know, he's been quite open about his own struggles with alcoholism and, um, you know, depression, his mental health struggles. And he's, he's been in very bad physical shape at times, that kind of fluctuation of body shape that some boxers struggle with. But obviously he is riding the crest of the wave at the moment and enjoying a period of success. And he came out with this cracking quote <laughs> that I thought of last night, as I said, after watching that scene in Blade Runner. And here's his quote. He said, there ain't a man out there born from his mother that can stop me or beat me. I haven't seen one yet anyway. Maybe he's not born or maybe he is, but he hasn't got the guts to come and fight me. End quote. That is an absolute cracker. I think like <laughs> that is next level. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you want to call it. Chutzpah or just the neck on him. The, uh, you know, <laughs> not not afraid to tempt fate, not afraid to stand on top of the mountain. There ain't a man out there born from his mother that can stop me or beat me the grandiosity of that statement is staggering and comically uh, comically so but also fascinating I think to come out I mean that's just such id uh, speaking pure pure deeply felt primal tiger lion roar I am the king of the jungle uh, and I will I will kill you all and you can't hear that quote and maybe you're making starting your brain's already gone there before I, I, I say it but you can't hear that quote and you can't hear the other quote without then thinking of Shakespeare's Macbeth so now we have this link from let's say Philip K. Dick's uh, original short stories that do androids dream of electric sheep is that it? Uh, which was the inspiration for Blade Runner and that sci-fi dystopia. We go to contemporary heavyweight boxing and we can circle back to Shakespeare's Macbeth because this is part of Shakespeare's, uh, this is this is part of the prophecy for Macbeth that convinces Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, that he should be the king of Scotland and that he should kill his his sort of father figure, King Duncan, um, to then take the throne. And he is hit with three prophecies. And the one that's most significant that gives gives um, Macbeth, you know, the greatest sort of wind in his sails is when he consults the three witches. Um, they say to him, laugh to scorn the power of man. For none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. And I think the first half of that sentence is great as well. Laugh to scorn the power of man. For none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. But that is, that that first clause, laugh to scorn, 
the power of man. I mean, that fits in really well. That fits in really well with the, the, the Tyson Fury mode um, of, you know, dismissing your enemies, of dismissing, you know, all who would come before you to, to challenge you. And, of course, what Macbeth finds out to his great dismay at the end of the play, spoiler alert, but, you know, it's 400 years old or whatever it is, so I think you can handle it. Um, Macduff, one of the other uh, clan leaders, he is ultimately the one who kills Macbeth. And Macbeth, in the heat of battle, is saying, listen, you can't, you know, I'm just going to tell you now, you may as well stop trying because no man born of woman, etc., etc., can kill me, blah, blah, blah. And Macbeth, Macduff, Macbuff, Macwoof, Ruff, Ruff, Macduff says, I hate to break it to you, buddy, but he says, I was from my mother's womb, untimely ripped. And so here we're getting into the semantics of childbirth. And the argument is Macduff was born by C-section, <laughs> by cesarean. I don't know if it was an elective, but uh, that's how Macduff was born. So he didn't come out naturally. He didn't come out down below. He came out through the old tummy. And that then sends a shiver of dread through Macbeth, who is almost instantly vanquished. And that is the end of Macbeth's reign of terror. Now, just... Um, this is a slight slight digression I'm going to come back to the, my main theme but just sticking with Macbeth for a second Lady Macbeth is sort of the archetypal plotting wife the the wife behind the the powerful man who is driving him and egging him on the wife who is as power hungry as the husband and actively actively drives him on and motivates him and persuades him to do the unthinkable and the unspeakable and i suppose i was just thinking about it when i when i was just kind of jotting down my notes for this episode lady macbeth in a way is is responsible for this 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 um this characterization of of certain women um, now it's, it's they don't they don't fall into the kind of the gold digger category, but there, I feel that there is a, you know, a misogyny has been born out of that particular type, that particular role because, you know, famously Lady Macbeth, you know, when she's when she's trying to summon her own sort of her own resilience and conviction and determination to power through and make her husband or convince her husband to do these dreadful things, she basically asks the gods to unsex her and to take away all her feminine, caring, mothering qualities uh, so she can basically get on with the job in hand. And it lays down, I suppose, that template of... If a woman's going to be successful in the achievement of power, she has to abandon her femininity and embrace traditionally male qualities. Um, you know, zero softness, zero compassion, zero care, just pure, unadulterated ambition. 
Um, and it put me in mind, just to give you a more contemporary example, it was a very good movie um, directed by, is it J.C. Chander? From, um, I think, yeah, 2014. Uh, sort of a New York crime slash business movie called A Most Violent Year set in 1981 in New York and focusing on a businessman in the waste management uh, industry uh, played by Oscar Isaac and he is sort of negotiating with organized crime and it's about I guess having uh, jurisdiction and areas of power and control and operation and he lives in a lovely kind of leafy suburb and his wife is played by Jessica Chastain, who I think is excellent, basically. I've never seen her be, being bad in anything. And she is very much the Lady Macbeth character in that, just uh, in the background, but very steely, very committed, very cold, and very uh, resolute in, uh, you know, in, in holding on to what they have and building the platform. Um it's a, it's a, it's 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 an interesting movie. It, I I don't know if it was as successful as as it as it deserved. I think it went under the radar a bit. It's quite low key, but uh, but no, well well worth a watch. Well worth a watch, and I mean to to bring it back to what we're talking about today, like the idea of of sort of the the idea of ascension, I suppose. The idea of ascension, of achieving one's apex, of arrival and completion. Um, now that in that movie, it's put into a sort of a you know a, a crime business um, paradigm and what you're willing to do, um, and the I suppose in, typical for a crime a crime movie. Um, it's there's an inexorability inexorability that's better isn't it inexorability and an inability to escape the pull of the machinations of the pursuit of power so Oscar Isaac ultimately is not really in control of the thing you know the events that unfold and that's the cost the you know the, the grim choices he has to make are the grim dynamics that he ends up being uh, complicit in um and yeah as i say look told told very well so all of this together you're talking about you know blade runner you're talking about replicants you're talking about the the, the quest for the quest for identity the quest for fulfillment the quest for meaning the the the, the wrestle the wrestle with purpose that question of you know what's it all about what's it for and who am I and what's my role in this? I mean, those questions, if we place them on a uh, on the shoulders of a character in a movie, they lend themselves very well to sort of hero journeys. Um, you know, the, 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 the journey from inexperience to experience, the journey of discovering one's special gift and the journey towards uh, absolution, I suppose, um, and maybe not so much absolution in terms of being absolved from something, but absolutism, you know, becoming complete. And 
that I think in terms of if, if, we, if we try and draw a thread into the world of wellness and mental health that sense of being incomplete I believe is a very recognisable feeling and those 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 spaces in ourselves that feel empty that feel like they've never been fully functional so missing pieces or or wrong pieces um ill-fitting parts that that sense of not being fully right and that sense of not being fully rounded complete and then you know you can, you can extend that into the sense of fulfillment but in a way i feel fulfillment can be more externally satisfied by you know pursuing the things you want to pursue in life and this sense of being you know being being the empty parts being filled inside that's more yeah as i say because it's inside it's it's it's, it's more of an internal dilemma and more of an internal drama um but it's 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 very it's very rich material for for the movies and definitely a huge part of what we see in in the Blade Runner movies and it's it's interesting that in those movies the sort of the alpha the alpha replicants I, I referred to Rutger Hauer earlier uh, from the nineteen eighty two movie and in the yeah in the the, the sequel um from 2017 that same role that character the 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 alpha replicant who is the assistant the sort of the number one get things done replicant who is uh wallace's right hand person um wallace being the jared leto uh character um she it's a she and she's played by a, another dutch actress rutger Hauer was also dutch and that just that just occurred to me there earlier her name is sylvia hooks or i don't know how to pronounce it it's h-o-e-k-s and they both she and rutger Hauer, it, it, you know two brilliant performances and two brilliant characterizations of these superhuman characters you know these you know replicants with the you know with the full set of programming to give them skills beyond their peers and fundamentally you know a superhuman strength and a, a bit you know i suppose in a way that there are echoes of that of that of this type in um robert patrick's uh sort of robot assassin in terminator 2 this this uh, sort of mercury based liquid metal um assassin that has been sent back from the future to to take out um to take out the the, the future leader of the human rebellion against the robots um in this case played by edward furlong in terminator 2 and then arnold schwarzenegger is there as the reformed, the reformed, reprogrammed Terminator, who was the antagonist in the first one, but in Terminator Two, he's been sent back to protect the future leader of the rebellion. 
um, and has to wrestle with um, Robert Patrick's joyless, resolute, unstoppable killing machine. Um, and so there's something of that in 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 the Rutger Hauer character of Roy and the Sylvia Hooks or Hooks character of Love. And there's a funny one as well. She's called Love and Ryan Gosling's um you know, whatever you want to call her, mate, um pleasure model is called Joy. So we have love and joy as the two most significant female replicants in Denis Villeneuve's sequel. Um, I'm not sure what we're meant to think of that. Uh, love, joy, and then Ryan Gosling is K. What's K? Is K potassium? What's K the the element, um, the elemental symbol of? I don't know. Anyway, listen, I'm not gonna. <laughs> right, that's that's the end, that's the end of that exploration. I didn't research that one. Um, but the, as I say, the characterizations of those two characters in the Blade Runner movies is really, really effective because they're both, they're both kind of perfect specimens in a way and perfect replications of, um, you know, of, of male and female human forms and, they are very complex and they are emotional and they are very aware of of what they are and there's a sort of a in in Rutger's in Rutger Hauer's case ultimately a resignation a sort of he he kind of comes to peace with his inevitable death um, and it, it, it's quite haunting and magical his death scene in Blade Runner um, and he, he has this great little speech about you know, what he's seen and experienced um, in, in the places he's been the, his equivalent in the Villeneuve um, sequel doesn't, doesn't get the same um, sort of uh, the same sort of bittersweet send off the same sort of you know, elegy, um, again, struggling with that adjective, elegiac, <laughs> the same elegiac finish. Um, she ends quite ignominiously uh, drowning or being, yeah, held underwater by the Ryan Gosling character. Full of spoilers, but, you know, you're not listening to this to, you know, to um, to preview movies. Um, but again, there's a sort of a real pain that is expressed and captured so well by each of the actors. And it's it's the pain of limitation. And it's the pain of their finite experience. The pain of recognizing um, the, the pain of recognizing their artificiality. And I think if you take that idea, it's it comes. It reminds me of a point I was making the other week about you know a, you know a, a, maybe maybe it was just last week's episode. You know, a little a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and in a way, these replicants are cursed with the level of intelligence they've been given, um, because. They know so much and they, they recognize so much and they're highly 
you know, high achieving and high adapting creations. And they are all too aware that they are not nor ever will be complete. And so it's pure, it's, it's a pure existential conundrum. It's a pure existential torture uh, because they know why they've been built. So in that sense, it's not like why they're like, I know who I am, but I want to be something like I never can be. So there's a, an, an ingrained, um, you know, a programmed in a sort of a, a, a defeat is already there. And so this is what this is what makes the this is what brings the poignancy of one of those creations going. Hold on a second, am I actually human? Or the tantalizing prospect of hold on a second, we can make babies, we can give birth, and you know that's the that's the driving, the driving sort of um, the, the 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 driving plot component of of Villeneuve's sequel, and it, it, it's brilliant and. If you bring that back, if we bring it back to wellness and mental health, this idea of um, of finiteness, of never being able to to get there, whatever your definition of there is, I'll never be able to to love. Um, I'll never be able to be loved. I'll never be able to have confidence. I'll never be able to quiet my anger. I'll never, I'll never not be afraid. I'll never not doubt myself. Um, now I'm using the word never, which makes it sound like it isn't finite. But what we want is to get to get beyond these things that we feel hold us back or compromises. These things that bring shade to our lives um and these things that are fundamental to the sort of empty spaces in us and so that's one way we may you know that's one way we may engage with that idea of oh if i could just kind of fill that kind of cavity then um i'd have i'd have a you know then then i'd be then i'd be happy i mean that's that's the magical thinking isn't it then i'd i'd be happy if now, that's always, to me, sort of flawed logic. Happiness is not a permanent state. It's a temporary state. And it's a responsive, reactive state um, that's a product of, of, in, the mo- in, of in, in the moment experiences. Um, you know, we can talk about contentment and acceptance, um, maybe they're you know they're more i think they're more uh, achievable in the long term but um but yeah it's really interesting look i think it's really interesting the, the the aspect of this and who we decide can fill those spaces who we can who we decide can render us complete and so this gets back to one of the sort of big existential questions and one of the kind of philosophical questions of of those characters in Blade Runner because we have father figures in those movies. You have Tyrell and you have Wallace who are aloof and austere and cold and 
unloving and without compassion and it's funny for some reason um you know steve jobs just came in my head um and i'm thinking of michael fassbender's portrayal of steve jobs in the uh the danny boyle movie is that what's it called it's, i can't even remember what it's called it can't just be called is it called <laughs> the life and times of steve jobs by danny boyle um oh, i've just gone blank on that i don't know what, anyway that movie um Seth Rogen's in it, Jeff Daniels, uh, Kate Winslet. Very interesting. You certainly don't come away from that going, Steve Jobs, what a great guy. You might go, what a great mind, how determined, how ambitious, um, all of that. Uh, but I'm not a big fan of Apple. Um, I'm not, uh, not going to go into that right this second. But to go back to this idea of who we think can give us completion, who can, who can fill those empty spaces in us? I mean, that is, I think, a very fundamental human experience. And I think in our quest, in our quest to fill those spaces, we, we remain very vulnerable depending on where we decide that satisfaction will come. Now, if we stay in the world of fiction, you can think of characters like um, like David in Steven Spielberg's AI from 2000. Um, in that movie, David is, uh, again, an artificial intelligence creation, a little boy, child, android wide-eyed that little cute package that was Haley joel osmond um famously coming to uh prominence in uh, m night shyamalan's uh, the sixth sense but another one of his early kind of central roles was in that spielberg movie ai and he is the kid looking for a family and looking for you know human connection and looking for his sense of belonging and looking for that sense of, you know, make me whole, complete me. But what we see then um, is his journey out into the world where he is just so vulnerable because he wants that companionship and that sense of completion so badly. Um, again, nice, nice role in that movie from Jude Law. I remember really appreciating his role as uh, Gigolo Joe. So a gigolo android, very, uh, very smooth and dainty and dapper and fun uh, and also a little bit dark, of course. Another pleasure model, so to speak. Brendan Gleeson as well in that as, was he like a, a ringmaster of a, a very macabre circus of horrors where these AI creations were tortured and ripped apart? Um, yeah, so there, thinking of Brendan Gleeson, he, of course, would perhaps remind you of Stromboli in Pinocchio. And if you think of the Disney version of Pinocchio from 1940, we're on the same journey again. Pinocchio is the creation of Geppetto, the toy maker. And Pinocchio is brought to life by the fairy godmother, whatever her name is. She comes from the, the star in the sky into his little room and gives him a chance to 
become a boy by being good and wholesome and virtuous and Pinocchio is so excited off he goes out into the world and basically again that kind of vulnerability of like well, what is it to be human like who am I where do I belong and gets led along some very dubious paths that movie stands up very well it's very bloody dark and scary uh the, the you know the misbehaving kind of boys he falls in with the bad crowd he falls in with Lampwick isn't that the kid and they're drinking and smoking cigars and they go off to oh I want to say Devil's Island is that that's hardly right is it but it's a very dark scene where basically all these kind of little you know misbehaving boys suddenly turn into donkeys little baby donkeys and then they're being whipped and herded and taken away to be slaves basically to be um you know beasts of burden in some sort of industrial setting it's really freaky stuff um pinocchio he doesn't he doesn't fully change he's sort of somewhere in between he's still got his puppet limbs and um, he's got the donkey's tail and the nose and of course it ends with that scary chase in the sea from uh monstro the whale man alive that is <laughs> and he <laughs> i just want to be a little boy um and he redeems himself in the end doesn't he because he saves he saves uh geppetto has gone out looking for him in his little fishing boat and has been swallowed by the whale as well and that's ah, lovely stuff anyway but look the that point of the vulnerability that comes with with feeling empty with feeling unfulfilled and being driven being driven by that quest for 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 being made feel whole for being made feel complete and the 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 driving question behind that quest is um who's going to fill my empty space and that is i don't know i mean i like i say that sentence it, like it, it makes me like i find that a very emotional thing that idea of like who's going to fill my empty space and who's going to make me feel complete that's I don't know, I, I, there's something very poignant, very sad in that, because I, I believe that's something many of us can can relate to. And if we seek that validation outside of ourselves, that's a, that's a, that's a tremendous vulnerability. And I believe that really the, 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 a huge challenge of bringing wellness into our lives is to try to satisfy that quest internally not externally to do the hard work of of uh, self-negotiation and it may it may be a path that requires therapy but it certainly is a path that requires uh, rigorous in and honest engagement with self and with our you know with your own vulnerability with your own wounds um and to invite acceptance into your into your world view of yourself you know into your, well, your world view into your your view of yourself and really you know it's it's the biggest cliche of all but it's 
you know, you come to peace with yourself and you'll come to peace with the world. I think that's, um, it really doesn't get, you know, it, you can't reduce it any more than that. Um, but as long as you're not at peace with yourself, there can't ever be, there can't ever be that mythical happiness. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not a straightforward, it's not a straightforward thing. Um, but I, I want to return, I know I'm circling around a little bit here and, you know, throughout this episode, but I want to come back then to the idea of who we think can make us complete and the idea of how we look to our creators so in this regard, we are very like the replicants uh, of Blade Runner. And we're very like David in AI. Uh, I think William Hurt is the creator in that, in that movie. Um, famously started by Stanley Kubrick, but then he died and Spielberg took over. I mean, such different directors. My goodness. Um, I mean, Kubrick. Did he have an ounce of sentimentality in him? Because uh, Spielberg, <laughs> oh man, he just, he can't stop himself. Doesn't matter what he's making. Um, Munich, I think, is arguably Spielberg's, the only Spielberg movie without, you know, without that overwhelming dollop of sentimentality in the mix. Um, I think his most mature movie. Anyway, um but yeah, this idea then of we look to our creators to go make me complete. And I, I, my argument is that's our, that's our parents. You know, whoever that, those parents, you know, if it's not biological parents or adoptive parents or, you know, whoever it's, it's you know, it's, it's these figures in our lives that we go, you made me, I feel broken. What did you do wrong? Um, can you fix me? Or where's the rest of, you know, where's the rest of me? You know, when you were assembling me, you know, where are those parts uh, of me that you forgot to put in? Um, and of course, that becomes a very accusatory position. Um, and we fail to remember that our parents are creations themselves. So, the, you know, the created becomes creator. Um, and so, you know, you, you know, our parents have their own empty spaces, their own broken parts, their own missing parts their own ill-fitting parts. And this is, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you like this um, analogy, this metaphor, but uh, I do. I think it works. Um, I, I wrote, I actually wrote about this a couple of years ago on theclearout.com. And I was on that kind of, I was looking at this whole journey of completion, the journey of redemption, absolution. And it was a, it was a post, an article that was, uh, that was prompted by having seen Ad Astra, the science fiction movie with Brad Pitt from a couple of years ago. And in that, Brad Pitt, and, and I know I spoke about this a few episodes ago um, when I was talking about masculinity in the movies. But, you know, Brad Pitt's journey in that movie as a high achieving, decorated astronaut who is sent back out into space to try and find his his father, who had also been a highly decorated astronaut, but who has gone a bit mad and is now raining down destruction on Earth. And he had been gone since the Brad Pitt character was a boy. And it's the journey of, well, this will, 
this will answer the profound emptiness in me the, the you know the absence of the father um so and i think i think you know one of brad pitt's best performances uh, he got he got all the love for once upon a time in hollywood and he was incredibly charming um in that movie a very easy funny um you know laconic sort of uh, performance but i think in in ad astra yeah for me that's the that's the performance um you i certainly went on the journey with him and i thought he was really good but in in that movie um ad astra which some have described as uh, apocalypse now goes into space um like he's, you know, the, the Tommy D. Jones character is the equivalent of the Colonel Kurtz character in um, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, as played by Marlon Brando. But this idea then that like Brad Pitt goes out into space to find his dad and go, yay, my dad, the dad I love. But it's also, I'm really scared to meet this guy. And I think there is a very primal programming in all of us in that we fear what created us because we fear that what created us can also destroy us and that is why even as adults our parents can loom so large in our lives um and still have that uh yeah that like can still hold an enormous amount of power over us and i mean i i don't know what the what the answer is to that it's something i think that you know you can recognize or not recognize you can resist or not resist accept not accept i think it largely depends on your relationship with your your parents if they're still around um but one of the ultimate um parent child relationships from the world of literature uh and one of the ultimate sort of analogous stories to the Blade Runner stories and to the kind of central theme of today's episode is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is the doctor who creates artificial life and builds what has become known as Frankenstein's monster. Um, But is actually, if you read the book, is an enormously sympathetic character who is the rejected son is the abandoned child and who has like the replicants in blade runner a tremendous level of uh, consciousness and intelligence and reflection and understanding and is in that exact situation of you know, you made me and yet I feel incomplete. And so there's a sort of a a desire for, you know, a desire for answers, but there's also a desire for retribution. I mean, why have you rejected me? Um, you know, you you know, I'm your responsibility, so take care of me. But then there's also that the, the flip side of that is, oh, you rejected me because I'm broken, or you rejected me because I'm a failure in your eyes. And then the driving impulse can be one towards forgiveness. Like, please forgive me. Please forgive me for not satisfying you. Please forgive me for not being lovable enough for you to care for and love and mind. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just indulge myself and quote from, um, 
quote from what I wrote. So and I'm going to repeat some of the stuff I've just said. Um, I'm not going to go through it all. But uh, what I wrote was, and this goes back to a piece I had on theclearout.com. I called it Casting Off. And it was from 2019. And I said, because we all hold the fear that that which created us can also destroy us. It is why our parents can still loom so large in our lives, even as adults. They are the ones who are responsible for the making of us. And the suspicion can linger long into adulthood that our shortcomings and neuroses are because of component parts they failed to insert when we were assembled. As if every mother and father has a small bag of unused pieces locked in a drawer somewhere. The finding of which would allow us to unwonk ourselves. And I continue and I bring in the, the, the Frankenstein reference. On a more emotional and psychological level, that sense of incompleteness can haunt us and become a source of anger directed at our parents, but also a source of shame and inadequacy that we have somehow failed or disappointed them. A terrible tension of hard and soft impulses remains. Are we seeking retribution or are we asking for forgiveness? Mary Shelley famously explored this in Frankenstein with the monster Frankenstein's creation epitomising this mortal struggle and giving vent to the conflicting emotions that ensue, threatening to fully indulge his rage if he cannot be granted love and therefore worthiness. When he cannot reconcile himself with the world he has been brought into, he turns to his maker and says, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel. And where do fallen angels end up? Yes, in hell. Okay, so that's my quote. <laughs> in hell. That sounds very bleak. But it's... um. You know, it's a, the, the, the hell, I go on in the article, I talk really about that, that hell of our own sort of, our own wrestle, the hell of, that's, that's the hell of striving for, striving for contentment. That's the hell of striving for inner peace, inner calm. That's the sense of, you know, striving for that sense of being accepted by the world. And, you know, this is, this is where we often become unstuck. And I mean, I've spoke, I spoke about this before in another episode, talking about our expectations and, you know, wanting the world to accept us a certain way. And, you know, the world often just doesn't care. I mean, that's the simple truth. Um, so best place to start is <laughs> accept yourself. Um, but that, like the, the, the darkness of the Frankenstein story, and I suppose why it became a horror story is... You know, it's expressed brilliantly in that line from the from the creation himself. I ought to be thy Adam, but rather I am the fallen angel. And the sort of the sinister foreboding that underscores that sentiment is is chilling, because the as you know the, the monster decides he'll give vent to his rage, and you know that's that's the angry child. Uh, you know, I'm going to tear you down because of what you've done to me. Um, you know, huge sort of moral retrib- retribution, which ultimately, of course, is is self-consuming and does not lead to to happiness. I mean, and this is 
this is what I was talking about last week about you know the venting of anger but um but yeah i i mean i think it's all i think it's all um very interestingly connected and if you come back to sort of wellness 101 or mental health 101 or therapy 101 it the, the you know the, the at a certain point i believe it is beneficial to take over the parenting role to take over the parenting of oneself and to take over the parenting of the child within uh known as the inner child <laughs> and that is that is the road to personal responsibility that is the road to acceptance and that is the road to personal self-given validation and Again, in the in that article I wrote, uh, I, you know, I did kind of look at this whole idea of absolving ourselves and forgiving ourselves and throwing off the you know these weights that we carry and giving ourselves our own blessing and our own permission to to heal and our own permission to to fill those empty spaces. Because, I don't know, it's, I mean, it, it's a huge ask. It's a huge ask of other people um, to do that. And it's, it's fundamentally too much for other people to do. Most people don't have, I mean, I don't, I don't know if anyone has that in their gift. Um, I mean, this, this is absolutely fundamental to how we relate to each other and how relationships can be so meaningful and on the dark side so terribly destructive and life ruining um particularly when you know particularly when we're kids particularly when we're we're children and we're vulnerable and we're on that journey of growing learning the messages we receive we we we, we embed um and you know what we experience in terms of how we are received in the world, we embed. And that sadly can be very, very destructive stuff that plants the seeds of, um, plants the seeds of mental unwellness um, into our adult lives and plants the seeds for bad relationships, um, which ultimately all come from bad you know if you have a bad relationship with yourself it's very hard to have anything other than a bad relationship with other people um again psychology 101 um so you know that the the hard work the hard work is to 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 engage with this idea of I don't know. Well, like, you know, just just you know, engage with the idea that you have the power to fill your own empty spaces, and this comes back to the same stuff I talk about week in, week out. Your own positive practices, um, your own engagement, honest engagement with self, honest engagement with your your thoughts, your your feelings, your actions. Um, and trying to trying to view yourself objectively um objectively but 
non-judgmentally um, objectively and compassionately and again I return to the idea of you know being being kind to yourself and if that's not you know if that's not a central idea of parenting to try and be kind and um, nurturing and non-judgmental and supporting but crucially also challenging um you know i i don't know what is uh so there you go i think um i think that's enough i think that's enough for today so i don't know if that all hangs together coherently but uh, you certainly got quite a few movies you've got quite a few movies to to look at now uh you may have a book to read if you've never read mary shelley's frankenstein um it stands up very well um and if you don't if you don't come away from that book with sympathy for the uh, the monster, um, I don't know, lads. Come on, you, you're missing something there. He's he's, he's a great character. Uh, you know, we're 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 all that character, aren't we? In some way. Um, so there you go. Listen, thank you so much for lending me your your ears, your time, your headspace, and letting me natter on for um, oh, seventy minutes. It looks like. Uh, yeah, thank you. You can get the the social media the social media hits in the description. Um, if you want to throw any support the way of this very much independent podcast, you can do so using the supporter link or the Patreon link, which you will also find in the description of the podcast of this episode, wherever you choose to listen. So. There you go. Look at take care. Mind yourselves. Have a good week and I will talk to you next time. All the best. Take care. Bye.